Welcome to Geek Exploration, the podcast, where a mere glimpse behind the veil of our universal truths would surely drive you mad. I'm Ben Robinson. And I'm John Williams. And I could not help feeling that they were evil things. Mountains of madness whose farther slopes looked out over some accursed ultimate abyss. That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and aeon-long death of this untrodden world, an unfathomed austral world. We're talking HP Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey Ben. Hey John. Uh, how you doing? Doing all right. That was, that was kind of nerve wracking reading that entire thing there. <laughs> was I think that one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have just been two. But uh, hey, if if anybody thought that sounded long and wordy, then uh, if you know anything about today's topic, you know that it is appropriate. That is true. Yeah, the man liked his words. Yeah, certain words very specifically. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, but how are you doing, Ben? Uh, I am doing well. Uh, I've had a nice weekend, went out on a date with the wife last night, had a nice steak dinner, and uh, saw No Time to Die. Ooh, did you get a handy in the back of the theater? No, I couldn't talk her into it. <laughs> Old married couples, the thrill is gone. No. Nope. You know, I mean, to be honest, I don't think I've ever gotten a handy in a theater. I don't think I've ever gotten no, anything other than some tongue in a theater. Honestly, I think I'm I'm too old to even really want a handy anyway. Like, I, th- I think I would do a better job than she would. I'm almost certain of it. Yeah, yeah, maybe the thrill's gone. When you're a teenager and you're just like, oh, shit, it's a hand that's not mine. Yeah, there's a girl you know? touching my wee-wee. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, the thrill makes it makes it go quicker. It's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're talking hand jobs t- <laughs> today. <laughs> that's what the H in HP Lovecraft yeah. stands for. Hand plow uh, Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, we're starting out pretty spooky here. How about you, John? How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, I also had a pretty decent weekend. Uh, the girls were hanging out with family on Friday night, so I got to sit at home and just watch TV and draw and have some drinks and yeah, it was good. Nice. I have not seen No Time to Die and I'm pretty pissed about that, but it's my own fault and I'll get to it. Um, but yeah, this has been an interesting week, uh, going through Lovecraft stuff because I personally am not any sort of uh, Lovecraft fanatic or 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 even well versed in Lovecraft stuff. Like I I know about Cthulhu, you know, just through pop culture and everything. But this is a topic that you have been pushing for for a little bit, or you've at least yeah. suggested a couple times. Yeah, I, I I have enjoyed Lovecraft for a while. I, I I mean, more than anything, I love the mythos. I, I mean, I think he's got a really interesting universe that he built mm-hmm. essentially uh, the few things of his that i had read i enjoyed but you know i liked adaptations and things that were influenced uh, by him that uh you know the, the general cosmic horror genre i guess that he essentially created like this was not really a thing prior to him i mean there was horror authors still yeah it was like gothic horror before he came into yes. it and then he he added uh, kind of a, a science fiction flair just on a grand scale yeah absolutely on the note of like Lovecraft and cosmic horror for anyone that's not super familiar with him in general, I've got a quote, the opening quote from the call of Cthulhu that I wanted to kind of start things off with. Cause I think it kind of encapsulates the idea of cosmic horror. 
The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live in, on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad with the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. That totally should have been my intro quote. It was long and wordy, and then can you imagine right after that saying, we're talking H.P. Lovecraft? We could re-record and do that instead. Nah. I'm totally down. but that would have been perfect holy shit but i think that quote just sums up what cosmic horror is you know the idea of getting a glimpse as to what's really going on and realizing that it doesn't give a fuck about you and that it's terrifying and cruel and it's just too much and you go fucking crazy yeah yeah like from from what i've been able to gather it seems like cosmic horror and in oh I, he had a term for it i can't remember if it was like cosmicism or something like that but it's like the acknowledgement of your place in the universe and in time and what a like infinitesimal speck you are in all of that yeah, and, and how like, meaningless you are yeah like like just both in the span of time and like the amount of space you occupy when, you know, in, in his fictional world, there are creatures of such vast size and scope and age that, that it's like you you really are nothing. Like you you are less than nothing. Yeah, you're not even ants to them. They're not even aware that you exist. Yeah. And that, that's one of the cool things about his idea of gods or, you know, the elder ones, th- those beings. Like they don't give a shit about you. They Like if you summon them forth or if you help get Cthulhu back, he's still you know, won't even wipe his boot after he stomps on you because he gives no shits about you. Yeah, we're like like a dust mite with a lifespan of half a second. Yeah. To them. You know, we we may as well not even exist. And now I've gone mad. It'd be like if the lice that live in your eyebrows gained sentience. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, Ben, what is your first impression of this guy? I imagine it happened a lot earlier than it did with me. Maybe. So, uh, so I was thinking about it and I, and I realized my first introduction to the ideas that he created without even knowing that it was him that created them was, uh, back in junior high at some point when, uh, I bought ride the lightning motherfucker. And, uh, yeah, there's a fantastic song on there called call of Cthulhu and it is so fucking good. Is such a jam. That whole album's fucking badass. And I take it that was also yours. No. Oh, it's just a well, better one. <laughs> here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. And I think we talked about Ride the Lightning on our music episode and how like that is without a doubt my favorite Metallica oh, yeah, album. Same here. That thing is fucking brilliant. I love that. Like they took the speed of Kill 'em All, which was too much for me. I didn't like the speedy thrash stuff of Kill 'em All. Oh, I love that too. But then they introduced like melodies and harmonies and production into uh ride the lightning and that was such a great album no actually uh breaking from format a little bit that's my favorite use in pop culture oh (laughs) (laughs) damn it yeah i was like can we make it through the entire episode without talking about it and i not i had decided consciously to to not use that as my favorite use in pop culture because it doesn't actually like it is that in name and mood, but like it isn't actually expressing the you know any of the the literature or the yeah. the verbiage of uh, of Cthulhu. 
So, so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to fudge that, that, that won't be my first impression because my first impression will come later than that. But that is without a doubt, my favorite Houston Bob culture. Oh, boners. Yeah. Yeah. That one. And that, I mean, I was, I was going to sort of also give a runner up to, um, the song, uh, save your runner up. Oh yeah. For the actual, there we go. One. And we'll talk Some about mystery. this now. But yeah, that song is so fucking badass. Oh, and it's the only instrumental on the album. It's nice and long. I mean, it's got like that wailing, like moaning guitar mm-hmm. through it that, uh, you know, it almost seems like some sort of elder god growling in the night or something. Well, yeah, and the, the the way it starts with with that, like with that fancy little picking with, yeah. with like some nice reverb on it. And then like the the bass high up on the neck doing like the and then when it fucking yeah. builds up with the drums and just goes full bore like it's I, I was listening to it on my way up. Here. Oh, it's a fucking jam. Yeah, I almost I'd almost forgotten about it. I mean, like I didn't forget about the song, but like I hadn't associated it w- with it until it just like popped into my head. And I was like, oh. Oh shit! Yeah, that is definitely the first time Son that I heard the word bitch. Cthulhu, and I remember thinking, like, "How the fuck do you say that? What is, what is this Cthulhu thing?" Well, and it's what made me want to like look. What is Cthulhu? I didn't know what it was. They actually um, spelled it differently on yes, the album. It's like, yeah, K K T L or U L U. Maybe it wasn't in the public domain yet. Actually, it's still not in the public domain, is it? For some reason. Well, I read that the uh, the reason why they did that was to avoid the pronunciation problems. They're like, okay, let's just make it Cthulhu. Oh, there's some pronunciation problems even there, because I always say Cthulhu instead of Cthulhu. See, I feel like like I always said that also, but I think it was because I had heard the term Cthulhu before uh, the song. But like, I don't I don't know where I would have heard it from, so I can't actually yeah. nail down a. Uh, well, and it's a you know it's a th, so you'd think it would be Cthulhu. Like I guess technically, H.P. Lovecraft in one of his letters like explained how he thought it would be pronounced. Oh, really? And that has two syllables. Which uh, is one fewer syllable than I always pronounce it. Yeah. And like a hard tongue to the top of your mouth sound to start it. And almost, and you almost have to cough it out because it's not like a Yeah, I have no idea. But basically, it's it's not a name that the human palate is meant to reproduce. Like Rillier or or whatever the name of that island is. Yeah, I've heard like a thousand different pronunciations. Yeah, Rillier and Rillier. I think the one I like the best is Earlier. Oh, interesting. I I think I I I would have just naturally gone Rillier like that. Not but not like Rillier like the guy reading the uh, the audio book that I read or listened to. I like like just the R. You maybe say Er. So Mm, Earlier. Earlier. Ooh, I like that. It sounds like a breakfast tea. Yeah. <laughs> Early in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is that was definitely my first impression. And it's what kind of got me to look up what that was. And it was the first time that looking into it was when I first heard about H.P. Lovecraft. And I read, I think, yeah, it was probably back around that time I read Call of Cthulhu. And uh, didn't go back to it for a while because it is not the easiest thing to read. It's a very Baroque kind of language where there's mm-hmm. just, it's, he writes in a, in a kind of an archaic way. Like I, and honestly, then I thought he was like mid 1800s or something. Oh yeah. I didn't think that he was from like the thirties. Yeah. Yeah. The 20th century. Like, whoa, yeah. weird. Yeah. That was my first impression. What about you? I'm considering my first impression the first time that I actually did a dive into a work of HP Lovecraft, because like I said, you know, like the Cthulhu mythos is why am I saying mythos all of a sudden? I did that yesterday too. 
I don't know. It's so weird. The Cthulhu mythos. Are you British now? I don't know. I, the, 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 I mean, no, I'm not. But uh, yeah, I don't know why. All like I did that yesterday, and I called myself on it immediately, just like today. You're gonna take a lift down to the druggist to get some aluminium foil, uh huh, and some vitamins. Then I'll go to the water closet, and uh, I don't know what the, what they what their slang for taking a dump is, but I bet they got something. I know you clean up with bog roll. <laughs> bog roll. <laughs> um, no, so it was actually within the last year. Um, I was at the comic shop, uh, Empire's Comics Vault in Sacramento, California, and I was getting ready for going in for my second surgery, uh, eyeball surgery. And after the first one where I was like head down for an entire week, I was like, oh, okay, I need some reading material. So I, I went into the shop looking for some things and I just stumbled upon uh, these three graphic novels. There, there was uh, Shadows Out of Time, The Dream of Unknown Kadath, and the strange case of Charles Dexter Ward. But um, it's it's an adaptation written and drawn by, um, I think his name was I-N-J. Like he, he also used uh, letters, Colbert. His last name was Colbert. So it's just I-N-J Colbert, or maybe it was I-N-F Colbert. Um, but the first one I read was the strange case of Charles Dexter Ward. And it was interesting but I don't think I super enjoyed it. Like, I mean, summing it up, because apparently I was super out of it after, <laughs> after my surgery, because I, I remember the large beats, you know, like there was this cult that like infuses spirits into these people, or, or maybe it's that somebody else like takes over the identity. Basically, Charles Dexter Ward is like one of these three assholes who's lived for centuries through like yeah. uh, nefarious- Summoning- yeah, yeah, like like demon elder gods, body and possession and shit. Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't, I, I didn't really enjoy it. Like it was just paced in a weird way, and I don't know if that's because of Lovecraft himself, or if that, or if the uh, the person who was adapting it just didn't do a great job. Because I mean, Lovecraft has some weird pacing. Yeah, adapting Lovecraft's pacing to something else is tough. Like I can see that being a difficult thing to do because he doesn't always tell things in like a narrative form. Like you get little chunks and pieces and it's almost like found footage for literature. <laughs> you know, a lot of his stories, including that one starts out with like one of his, I think his nephew or something finds out that he's related to him and starts looking into him and finds out that he lived for hundreds of years and then he gets all interested in it. He goes back to where he lived and he digs up the papers and he starts some in trying to do some of the rituals and stuff. And so, Oh, is that okay. Yeah. For some reason, I think at some point I, I thought that like the nephew was already possessed by him and, and that like the, the incantation was to just like seal it or something, you know, to like finalize it. It's all told from that perspective where he's piecing it together and he's finding stuff out. And, you know, it's kind of like a detective, not uh, actually he might have been a detective oh it's been a while since i read that one i was looking for the, for the graphic novel to bring out with me but i couldn't find it it's in one of my boxes of comics to get rid of yeah but it is one of those ones where it's paced weird where it kind of jumps around in time call of cthulhu is the same call way. of cthulhu totally does it's that all the fuck over the place and uh trying to translate that to a, a visual medium is super hard, especially when in so many of his stories, it's like he saw this thing that would drive you insane. It's like, okay, how do I draw this yeah. thing now? What does that look like? It's an 
uphill battle to try and adapt cosmic horror, like, and especially his style of writing to any visual medium. Yeah. I mean, and then at least with the, with the second one that I, that I bought the, or the second one that I read of the three, the shadows out of time, that one was actually fairly straightforward. And that, that was a pretty good read. Um, and then I, I had started up, um, dreams of unknown Kadath and, for whatever reason, I just, I, I dropped out of it fairly early on, but I, I dug that one out when I was looking for the other ones and I was flipping through and I was like, man, like th- this one actually looks pretty good. It's weird. Like, I feel like my perspective has changed since experiencing so much, uh, Lovecraft recently yeah. to where I was just flipping through and I was like, the things that are happening here seem more exciting than stuff like Charles Dexter Ward. So like, maybe I should give this a shot. Yeah. And you probably have a little bit more perspective on what it is too. That's a I imagine that's a rough way to get introed into it because uh, it may not be good and it's not going to make a lot of sense necessarily. It's going to be kind of confusing because they're trying to adapt something that's really hard to adapt. So yeah. the, the best way to start with Lovecraft is probably actually reading some Lovecraft, which also may be kind of tough for some people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think I could, I could say in all honesty that if I was actually reading at the Mountains of Madness instead of listening to it uh, uh, in audiobook form, I would not have gotten through it. I could see that. I I had a I had a tough time even listening to it. Like there were several times where I almost quit. Like that was one of his more profitable ones in his life, and it's one of his longer ones. It's one of his longer Definitely. form things because most of his stuff's short short stories. Mm-hmm. It's one of my least favorite. Like, I like the concepts and some of the stuff that he hits on in it, but boy, does he make it kind of tough to get through. Like, there's there's a lot of description and detail, which the further on you get in his career, the more of that there is. Mm-hmm. Even with stuff like Call of Cthulhu, like, he wants it to feel very believable. And and so, like, he's throwing out, like, coordinates. Like, you know, they yeah. were at, <laughs> you know, this whatever, south latitude, this west longitude. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know right where early A is. He gives you the coordinates <laughs> to it. It's right in between New Zealand and Chile. Like, when he's describing the old ones, is that what, he, what they're called? The, yeah, old ones, the ancient ones. They've used both, yeah. Like, he's giving, like, a very concise like scientific description because it's the, it's relaying what a biologist is like describing the fossil. I was listening to it while I was working and I was just like, okay, I'm trying to like imagine this thing in my head and piece all this stuff together. And oh boy, it's, it's not super easy. See, I was in when they first start talking about finding a creature and that, and, and, you know, they start describing it, but then all of a sudden they start going into like minute details about everything and like the, you know, the insides and what, and, and like circulatory system. And you're like, man, okay, like let's weird creature check, move on, you know? And, and same thing once they actually got into the mountains where I mean, I was going to try to be a whole lot more neutral about this until the very end. But, uh, <laughs> but if I have to, if I have to hear the word cyclopean one more oh time, talking about about buildings and structures, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. I'm going to Robert E. Howard all over this. He picks a few words and then just uses the ever loving dick out of them. Yeah, like cyclopean uh-huh. and um, stygian, stygian and eldritch, mm-hmm. and uh, what are some of the other ones? Um, decadent. Oh, yeah. He's decadent a lot, which I had to look up a couple of them because his language is a bit archaic. Uh, it, it It is not, he doesn't write in a modern way. And so like Cyclopean, I had to look up because I was like, what about this architecture is like a cyclops? Yeah. 
Like it has one eye? What does that mean? But I guess apparently Cyclopean architecture is uh, a type of architecture that was very common in Mycenaean civilization. Also like Incan civilization okay. used it as well, where it's very large blocks cut and fit to fit oh, okay. into each other very well. Like huge blocks cut to fit each other very tightly without mortar. Well, yeah, yeah. Just just like the the very ruins in South America that you look at and you go, had to be aliens. Like, yeah, they didn't have the technology to fucking put this together so well. That's exactly what he's talking about. Oh, uh, OK. And then the same thing with decadent, because like the only way that I've ever heard or that I've mostly heard decadent is like in like ooh, these decadent chocolate cakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost like indulgent or something or just, you know. Yeah. And that's not at all doesn't at all fit what he's talking about like this the society was becoming more and more decadent or it was in beyond the walls of sleep he's talking about like a hillbilly up in the mountains and how he's decadent and i'm like oh, weird i'm like wait a minute this doesn't make sense hillbillies aren't indulgent what, yeah. is, what is he talking yeah. about and so i had to like i had to google it and apparently the original definition uh and the main definition of decadent is like in decline it's related to the word decay Oh, interesting. And it got it got attached to like French aristocracy in like the 1800s and they were called decadents. They were just like jobless, feckless, rich people that would like dabble in the arts. They and, had a hole in their feck. And do whatever they wanted. And then so it got kind of usurped to be used for like needlessly self-indulgent. And and from there it got ported over to like incredibly in, like overly indulgent or rich foods. Because that's what decadence would eat, was this stuff that's just like, ooh, la -di -da. Wow. Hey, yeah. look at that. We're getting learned, too. Yeah. So that so I was like, okay, that makes sense. Like, the the society of, like, those creatures was in decay over time. You know, and that's why, like, things kept getting more and more primitive as time went on. But, yeah, it was very confusing at first. Because I was like, I got to look this word up. Because he's used it about 5,000 times. <laughs> and uh, And it does not seem to be for the meaning that I'm aware of. Man. Okay. So... Suffice it to say, this guy's a weirdo. Oh, like, yeah. H.P. Lovecraft is a weirdo. The way he writes is weird, even though I get I get why it sucks people in. Because I know myself well enough to know that at the Mountains of Madness, I probably wouldn't have been able to get through if I was reading it. Um, too much description for me. It reminds me of how you've talked about Tolkien. Um, about describing yes. something for several pages on end when, when it doesn't really matter that much. But there are other stories where where I think like... If I was reading it rather than listening to it, I bet I would really, I bet I would enjoy it more because I would be like absorbing the words in a different way and I'd be using my imagination to see it. Whereas when I'm listening to it, I'm like doing laundry you in the like meantime. You half attention to it. Yeah. yeah. It, it's kind of a bummer. Like I've, I've actually, I've never read or listened to an audiobook because I don't. Really? Because, yeah. Because it's, I don't, I don't want that for my experience. You know, if I want to read something, I want to read something. Or if I want to, you know, have it go into my ears, I'll, I'll just watch a movie of it. But I can see that. I problem is I, I have is that I just don't find a lot of time to read. That was exactly why I did and it. So like I, I started listening to audiobooks just because I could do it at work or while I was driving. Yep. Folding laundry. Yeah. And that's is the only way I could, you know, get through something because I get home and I'll crack open a book and three pages in I'm falling asleep because <laughs> I've been working all day. I, but I do see what you're saying. It doesn't ever get your full attention when yeah. you're listening to an audiobook. I would never just sit somewhere and listen to an audiobook and not do anything because that seems weird. But that's yeah. exactly what you do when you're reading a book. <laughs> yeah. And th there were there were times where 
certain phrases would catch me on and I'd be concentrating on it and it would be really cool. So, so, you know, I, I was trying to think of myself as like a young, a young man back before everything was just in your face, you know, at a pre-internet time and, and just be like that, that would probably be like a very immersive world and a, and a cool experience to read that sort of stuff. But he writes everything in a really dramatic way because mm-hmm. it, it's mostly first person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually somebody telling a story or telling the story about something they read or something. But it's it's very much first person. Like in Mountains of Madness, especially, he'll do a lot of, there's a lot of preambling. Sometimes he'll tell you something that happened and then he'll go back and fill in the details later. Yeah. You know, he'll be like, you know, and, the, you know, these people died and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and then like a chapter later, he'll go back and actually give you the description of what they found. Well, yeah, yeah. And like, like him talking about himself and, uh, and the two other guys when they went on their exploration, you know, he's just like, you know, we could never describe the things that we saw that day. And then like, you know, 10 minutes later, he is describing what they saw and you're like, oh, weird. Oh, okay. Yeah. Except when it comes to that last thing that, uh, that what's his ass saw. Yeah, that uh, he never divulged. Aww. He seems to confuse at times, confuse suspense with just plain old not getting to the fucking point. Yeah. Where like, I think he feels like he's building suspense by saying, uh, it, like in, in Mountains of Madness, there's, there's a way longer than it needs to be being like, we heard a sound and it would have been less odd to have heard some gurgling monster. It would have, you know, the oddness of it came from the fact that it was something wholly normal, except he takes like two minutes to say that. And, uh, it's a penguin. He, yep. heard, he heard a penguin. It's a bit much at times, but it's worth reading. And I, I still enjoy it because the concepts that he touches on are engaging and interesting. Um, like, like in the mountains of madness, like I'm stoked that I read it. I, I enjoyed it, but it is a little hard to get through and it's probably one of my least favorite stories. Yeah. I think that one could have done with some trimming. Definitely. Once they, okay. So when it starts off and they're on their expedition, like everything he's describing is really interesting. Like it's immersive. You're getting into the, into the story of, of this whole giant team and even all of their supplies and stuff. Like it's very interesting. And then, you know, Lake and his crew, when they split off, they find a, they find a monster and you're like, oh shit, they fucking found a monster. And then they, you know, line goes dead the next day and you're like, oh fuck, they got to go fucking find them. Mountains of madness. Here we go. Those guys are fucking dead. Yeah. And then like they go and find the camp and sorry, I'm spoiling it for everyone, but whatever. This is a cursory, uh, it's almost a hundred years old at this point. (laughs) 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 Um, you know, they, they find that the camp's been fucked. So they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to journey into these mountains that are, you know, that, that are taller than the Himalayas. They're basically the largest mountains to yeah. exist on earth. And they're going to go in there to, to find out what happened. Or just to check it out. I mean, they go up there just for scientific curiosity, like, Hey, we're here. We can't leave till tomorrow anyway. Let's, you know, let's see what's out there. Yeah. So, I mean this, and this is probably like a quarter of the way into the story. Then they end up spending like Half of the story, I mean, it seems like even more than that at this point. Yeah, it took me so long to get through this. It seems like they spend that long just, like, describing every detail of them, like, when they get in the plane and then they're flying up into the mountains and just, like, what they see at every single little point. It's a very and, detailed account. And it starts getting repetitive. Like, he, it, it's almost like he's describing the same thing in a different location over and over again. And just sprinkles in all these fucking like, you know, things that we couldn't possibly describe. And it's like, God, you, you, you seem to be having no trouble describing 
literally everything else. Yeah, like, find a way. There is not a single thing that I could see with my eyes, especially if it's architecture, that I couldn't describe. What are you, what are you fucking kidding me? Well, I mean, that's kind of the part of the point of cosmic horror is that you see things that you can't, just, like, that are beyond human understanding. See, if they're talking about, like, like you know, I, I was taken into a space dream realm by Cthulhu and experienced the thoughts of the entire universe, then, yeah. like, Okay, I get that that's a little indescribable, but when you're talking about a cyclopean stygian structure, it's like, you can say it. Like, even if the walls look like pudding, you could say the walls look like fucking pudding. <laughs> you know, it, if there's mouths on the walls, you say there's mouths on the walls. I don't know. The thing I had, like, a, uh, a bit of mixed feelings about that story was, like, I really thought it was cool that it went, like, deep into the, like, I mean, it ex I mean they explain, like, pretty much the entire history of this ancient alien culture. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you get, like, all kinds of insights into, you know, how they evolved, where they came from, how they in impacted the Earth, where they were living, where they were going, what they their did. Their wars with other their creatures. Yeah, their wars with, like, the Cthulhu spawn and the Migo, their philosophy, like, a, just a deep dive into this culture, which is, is kind of cool. Like, I, I like that bit of world building, and it's neat that you have that to fall back on for the old ones. But it's also like, hey, guy, you were wandering around for three hours in the dark with a flashlight. How the fuck do you know all this? Like, this is a little bit like this would be like years of study of any sort of culture. Yeah, especially in an alien language. And you're you're yeah. you're just gleaning like, all this from hieroglyphics. How are you getting how are you getting all this? Which, you know, whatever. But uh, but yeah, like that, the logical part of my brain was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> how do you know all this? And then the fucking story ends with. Them running from a creature that you can't describe, which was really exciting for, you know, the very last chapter of the book. Whereas they spent like eight of the 12 chapters just talking about architecture yeah. and history. And, and if I'm getting into a story by the master of horror, a story called At the Mountains of Madness, I expected so much more from that. I like Lovecraft a lot. But uh, I don't know if I'd call him the master of horror. Like he does, he does what he does really well, and it's a it was a cool idea that no one had had before, and that's what I love about it. Like I like the idea in that story that they went out, they found like these weird alien creatures that uh, weren't dead. Like they they pulled them out and they like dissected one, and they had some others, and like in the middle of the night they like woke up and they're like, "Yo, what the fuck's going on? Oh shit, our buddy's fucking toast. They cut our they cut him up." You know, and they killed all the people. Yeah, probably time to decapitate these guys. Probably because they freaked out. And, like, the, I'm sure the humans, when they saw this thing, like, get up and move around, were like, oh, fuck, shoot it. Yeah. And so they wiped them out. And they took, like, two specimens back for, like, later stuff. Like, they were scientific. Like, they were mm -hmm. conscious, intelligent creatures. And, like, that's, that's something he hadn't done before in his other stories. It was like, this was a race of, like, scientists. They were like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then they get back to their house and like their former slaves are like, <laughs> we fucking killed all of you. We're going to cut your fucking heads off and murder everybody. <laughs> and they get started and they end up getting chased by a Shogoth and get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Like it was a cool take and it would have been a really fun short story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was not short at all. No, no. But he had to cram all that lore in there somehow. I don't know. I mean, and, and I don't mean to just shit all over the guy because- you know, I, I didn't get a chance to do a super deep dive into a couple other stories, but but both um, Dunwich Horror and Shadows uh, Shadows of Over Shadows of In I don't know Over In Shadows Over Insmith. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, both of those stories 
sound super fucking interesting and I just didn't have time to get to them. Like I was, I was seeing what I could fit in. And when I got to both of those, because they're big names in, in uh, Lovecraft lore, I, I just, I didn't have time. You know, they, they, they're, they're bigger stories. You know, they're, they're, they're the stories that came in his big, like his big push. They were some of his later stories. Yeah, when he went back to Providence, which, I mean, I guess now's as good a time as any to, to talk about this weirdo, huh? Yeah, yeah, let's go into the man, H.P. Love Howard Phillips, Phillips Lovecraft. Yeah, this guy is a man who was fucking plagued by misfortune. Like, if you if you read the, you know, the, the highlights of this guy's life, it's no wonder he wrote this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. He was kind of a weirdo. So he was born in uh, on August 20th of 1890. Yep. Uh, so, the, the you know, the tail end of the 19th century. Uh, he was born into, like, a very well-to-do family. Mm-hmm. They, you know, considered themselves, like, part of the who's who in Providence, uh, the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. True to kind of where he goes with his stories, like his dad went fucking nuts mm-hmm. and was committed in 1893 when and died of syphilis when he was two. Uh, or no, no, he went crazy and got committed when he was two and he died of syphilis when he was eight. Yeah, yeah, five years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so his, his dad went bonkers. So like he grew up with insanity, you know, being a thing that he was familiar with. Yeah, his dad his dad was committed and he didn't see his dad again by like for for the entire time that he was committed which thank goodness I suppose I, yeah, I guess yeah, if I, if I was committed and losing my mind I, I I hope I would understand that that uh that my son didn't get to see me. Yeah, syphilis crazy. I mean that's what it does. It eats your brain. Yeah, Al Capone, man. Get out of here. Um yeah, and after that uh he and his mom went to go live with uh with his grandfather, uh whose name oh shit, was Whipple. Yeah, his name was Whipple. That's right. <laughs> Old Grandpa Whipple, um, who was super encouraging of uh of young Howard Phillips to be creative and to read. Like he he had a library and he and he encouraged him to be a voracious reader, whether it was fiction or classics or even like scientific journals. And I, I guess his uh, uh, old grandpa Whipple had a talent for cooking up like spooky stories. Yeah, he'd tell them like scary stories in bed. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, creepy old grandpa Whipple. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's when he fell in love with like uh, 18th and 17th century literature. Like he really loved that kind of uh, baroque romantic era, and he, like he was adored Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. Which totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it definitely influenced his writing. Like, that's why when I first read him, I thought he was one of those guys. From, oh, like, from back then. From, like, yeah. Poe's era. Because he writes like that. Like, yeah. by the time you get into the 30s, people aren't writing like that anymore. Yeah. People are writing the kinds of books that I like to read, like pulp novels. Even though his stuff was published, like, primarily in pulp magazines, I like those 100-page novels, you know, just a quick little little adventure story. He was older, but he was a contemporary to Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Like, they were being published in the same books. And uh, just style-wise, a world apart. Yeah, or, that's, you know, that's weird perspective. 50 years apart, yeah. style-wise. But, you know, that wasn't that old then. I mean, like, a style that's 50 years old in the 30s it would be like reading something from, oh, gross, the 70s now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. No, don't do that. Like, after his dad got committed, I guess, he had a complicated relationship with his mother, Susie, who uh, 
I guess she really like protected and babied him and was worried about him getting um, like hurt and sick. And so she kind of kept him inside a lot and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, was very covetous and protective of him while simultaneously being a giant bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like berating him and calling him like a grotesque monster but then at the same time saying like but don't ever leave me son you can't leave she, me she's like one of those like no one else will love you but me kind of mothers yeah. where she like was really protective of him but also a huge asshole <laughs> and also gave him like zero physical affection oh yeah like she was like a super puritan so she like wouldn't hug him because it was inappropriate wow like he might have gotten like a head pat here or there so, uh, yeah, that might make a kid weird. Yeah, yeah. That might make a kid have mommy issues and uh, confidence issues and oh. might might lead to some agoraphobia at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> after after Grandpa Whipple died, I guess uh, they found out that his his vast fortune, in quotes, uh, was had been mismanaged. And so yeah, they, yeah. they, in within days they were forced to, to, um, get the fuck yeah, out, vacate the property. They ended up destitute in, in an apartment together, like a small apartment where I guess HB Lovecraft just like locked himself away from the world. He didn't really go to a lot of like primary school anyway. He didn't have to back then. So mm-hmm. like he did most of his educating at home and with his grandpa and his books and a little bit of outside the house education but very little and when after that they tried to go to like a public high school and he and it was just too much for him just fucking bunch of people he he felt like he was way behind probably because he was Mm -hmm. like he went in there and didn't know a lot of things and i mean he probably knew english a lot better than most people but everything else not when he was eight he got heavy into like chemistry and and uh, astronomy like he was super into both of those, which, and the, like the astronomy thing is kind of what led to him, you know, realizing like the, how vast space is and how small he is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd heard that at eight, at, at eight, he had, uh, he had decided that he was an atheist. Yeah. Like he, he, he made that decision based on, uh, on his own thoughts and feelings. And he wasn't a dumb guy. Like he was a, a smart dude. Like he was capable, but, uh, he just had like. I mean, now, nowadays you'd say, you know, he had severe social anxiety Yeah, and, and was probably depressed, probably had depression. Definitely. You know, but that wasn't a thing back then. He was just weird back then. Yeah, exactly. And, and had like super self-confidence issue. Like anytime he talked about his own writing, it was basically it's trash. I hate it. Like a true artist. Yeah. His standard (laughs) artist stuff. And, and I heard some people talking about like where they're not sure how much of that was, his confidence issues, which he definitely had. And part of it was he had very strong feelings on what it meant to be a gentleman. And like, uh, you know, that he got from the books that he read in the 1800s were like, a gentleman is someone who pursues the arts and they, they're very um, humble and whatnot. So like, it would be ungentlemanly of him to say he enjoyed his own writing. Yeah. And he also felt it was ungentlemanly to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so he, like, he dropped out of high school because he had a nervous breakdown. He freaked out and was just like, fuck this, I'm done. And was just like a recluse mm-hmm. for a few years and wasn't really sure what he wanted to do until he discovered the pulp magazines. He started reading some of them, like little published magazines and was like, fuck yeah. Okay. I can sit in my home in the dark and I can write stuff and, uh, that'll be what I do. But he didn't want to get 
paid for it necessarily because he felt like getting paid to do art was ungentlemanly at oh, first. Oh, jeez. He started his own magazine called The Conservative. And uh, boy, it was just full of all kinds of xenophobic racist shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why don't we... Why don't we save that corner of the man for, for the end or, or do we just jump in it right now? Oh, I mean, I think we, I think so. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because he's got a reputation like, Hey, this guy was an anti-Semite and he was a racist and all of those things are largely true. Yeah. Like he, he, you know, he wrote like 120,000 letters they have in his, in the private collection, uh, like the, the, the foundation or whatever, like that they have a shit ton of writings and yeah, he's, uh, he did not like anybody that wasn't, you know, a white upper crust white person. Yeah. New Englander. Like, yeah. I mean, like it wasn't like, you know, I don't like black people and Chinese. Like he didn't like them either. No, he like, didn't. He was like, I don't like Irish people or Italian people. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he certainly <laughs> like, didn't like, didn't like the Jewish. No. Like he, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like just listening to some of the excerpts of, uh, of his writings about that. Like it's. It's pretty bad. Like for a second, you and I were talking earlier this week, like when we listened to Call of Cthulhu and he was describing, um, you know, the cult out there, that, the, the Cthulhu cult and how he just used terms that were commonplace back then that weren't necessarily just like derogatory terms. We're like, okay, that's not yeah, so like bad. Mulatto and, and, you know, mongrel and, and like me, well, anyone that wasn't mongrel, that sucks. wasn't a white person was kind of described as, as a bit savage yeah or like referring to a black person as negro yeah or chinaman like, yeah yeah like like those those were just terms back then like not 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 excuse me yeah, yeah exactly but you know once you dig a little deeper you're like oh no like yeah if this guy's going to like privately refer to african-american people as like beasts like ooh, no that's or not just that i mean like italians bad. too yeah. like i mean like literally Immigrants. He was just very xenophobic. Yeah. If you weren't here already, he didn't. He didn't want. And part of that. I mean, this guy grew up in grew up in Providence, was super sheltered, was a recluse, and literally had not left. You know, like a thirty square block area most of his life. I imagine his mom was also a huge racist, and that's probably where he got oh, yeah, most of yeah. it. So, I mean, like, literally his mom was one of those, like, no one will love you but me. Everyone else is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that's the world he grew up in. Like, like this guy does not have a worldly view. He had not, all these people he didn't like, he had probably never met. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, it was, it was ingrained in him because, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit, like, he actually got married to a Russian Jewish woman. Yeah, he did. And, and from all accounts, like. It wasn't a great marriage, but. No. But he he did fall in love with her. But it it seems like like also with um with oh crap I can't remember the one of the names but Robert Block the the author who wrote uh, Psycho like he was also a Jewish man and apparently H P Lovecraft didn't openly despise Jewish people or or you know like like immigrants if he met them and personally liked them like he like he he. I don't want to say like made exceptions, but, but it wasn't like he just, like he didn't want to meet them, but if he met them and got along with them, yeah. he wasn't just like, oh, this piece of shit. Well, I think it, like, I think more than anything, more than a racist, he was a xenophobe. Yeah. Like yeah. he was just worried about immigrants coming into America and changing American culture. Yeah. It, it was really his big thing. And I think like later on in life, like he actually started traveling more. 
uh, he got out. He like in in the in like the last five years of his life, and his views softened dramatically. Yeah, I guess they got they got they got hardened. Like so, when he got married to um, Sonia Green, Sonia Green, yes, she talked him into moving to New York, which made it super bad. Oh yeah, oh, like, oh yeah. That's when he went way off the deep end with the racist shit because he was living in a in a in a culturally diverse area. There was lots of different languages and cultures around him. And as a socially anxious guy who's kind of scared of things that are different than him, New York, probably not the best place to be. Yeah, yeah. And and then after a while, she got sick and she moved to, well, her Chicago hat business. Or something, right? Her hat business had gone out of business and while well, well, she was sick from something. So she took a job in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. And he and, refused to get a job. Outright yeah. refused. Because he's a writer. And so that's what he was going to do. And, and that's when he started publishing in like weird, weird tales. Is that what it was called? The the same one that I mean, like Bradbury was huge mm-hmm. in it, and uh, and that's kind of where he made his his little bit of money. You know, I mean, he got paid like fifty bucks per story. Yeah, but and, and from all accounts, though, he like never actually thrived. No, like, never. like in, in all of his writing he throughout, just throughout made his whole it life. Yeah, like I, I guess for a time when he was living in New York, like he would he was eating expired tins of food like when because he had so little money to eat yeah yep yeah and in 1919 dagon was his first published work in the vagrant Mm -hmm. and uh that was also the same year his mom was committed to the same asylum same asylum his dad went to and uh ended up dying a few years later from a botched gallbladder surgery jeez oh you know one thing i'd like to jump back to real quick uh in in his uh his journey to becoming a published writer, he actually got noticed because he would write letters to a magazine called uh, Argosy, which was a romance magazine about this uh, this one writer, oh, something, Fred Jackson. And he was, H.P. Lovecraft was the original troll because he wrote <laughs> shit tons of letters to, do. to the Argosy talking shit about this Fred Jackson and what a hack he was and how <laughs> shitty his writing was. And, and it caught the, uh, the attention of a, uh, of, I believe an editor there. Oh, oh no, it was, uh, he was, uh, he was high up in, in the, uh, United Amateur Press Association. And he was the, the person who gave, uh, Lovecraft the gig. And that, that's when Dagon happened. Nice. Yeah. He's probably like, Hey dude, I know you're calling this guy a hack. What do you got? Yeah. Being a troll can get you, well, not famous. Famous <laughs> long after death. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of his other big gigs that like got him in the door was uh, the Herbert West Reanimator, which was a series that came out in a humor magazine of all things. Interesting. That I didn't write the name down of, but it was like a buddy of his had a humor magazine and he was like, hey, I want you to write a story for me. Make it not too serious, you know, like it, it can be a little wacky and stuff, but kind of like lay down on like the really gnarly horror stuff. And that's what the reanimator was. It was it kind of written a bit tongue in cheek and it would like it was like absurd, but not too horror-y. Interesting, because I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever seen the actual movie, the reanimator, like top to bottom. Like I've, I've I know I've seen bits and pieces of it. But I know it's not like super serious horror movie, so I'm I'm I really wish I I had more time to have done a uh, a compare and contrast with with the uh, Herbert West Reanimator and the movie The Reanimator. Yeah, and it was originally called something else that I don't remember. So, 
It's not really worth that mentioning. Was a, that was a good anecdote. Yeah, yeah wasn't it? <laughs> That's usually my job to say, hey, there was also this one thing that I don't know anything about. But I mean, after him and like him and his wife, like she moved out, but they were still married. Yeah. And he eventually moved back to Providence. And I guess that's when like he started kind of like getting back to normal. Like New York was just too fucking much for him. It was just a bad idea to move there. And that's when he came out with Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. which uh, he submitted to Weird Tales and they rejected it the first time. But I guess he'd figured out that what he would do was he would submit it and it was like pretty common for the guy to reject it. And give a list of like things he didn't like about it. And then he'd wait like three months and he'd submit it again and be like, all right, I made the changes you asked for. And it would go through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll admit I've done that a couple times on my day yeah. job where, where, okay. I, where they're like, oh, can you bump this volume up on this one piece? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I don't do it. And then I'm like, all right, fixed everything. And they're like, oh, yeah. it sounds so much better. I'm like, fuck you. I knew it was <laughs> good the first time. Yeah. So yeah, he did that. And he got 125 bucks for that one. Woo. Which is, you know, that's like $2,000 now. So, I mean, that's that's decent. But, yeah. uh, like, he did that, like, once a year. So, <laughs> not a great income still. Well, yeah, and and at the Mountains of Madness, even though that's one of his bigger stories, I, I heard it took five years for it to actually get bought. Oh, yeah, Weird Tales wasn't interested. They told him no. Uh, he put a lot into that one. Like, they, he kind of felt that that was his magnum opus. Mm-hmm. You know, that, like, it was his first really big story. And he submitted it, and it kind of crushed him that that they didn't want to publish it. And it made him kind of doubt his own writing. And all the stuff that he wrote after that, like um, Shadows Over Innsmouth and um, the Dunwich Horror, both he... Um, or no, it wasn't the Dunwich Horror. It was something else. One of the other big ones. Uh, Shadows Out of Time? I know yeah. he wrote that in, in that in that little... Yeah. That was one of his big ones right then. He didn't even submit those for publishing after he wrote them. He just kind of like put them in a drawer. Like he, he didn't like him. Like he wrote him and he was just like, no, I, I'm not. These aren't good enough. He didn't. Yeah. He, he lost his confidence after that. It wasn't until after, uh, mountains of madness got published in 1935 that he actually like said oh, yeah, that he actually kind of started seeing some, a little bit of success. 35. I mean, that's like when the pulp sci-fi thing is just starting to kick off Yeah, and it didn't really pick up steam until shit the fifties. Yeah. Until well after he was dead. You know, and in and, and the, the early 30s, when he starts traveling, he gets comfortable in Providence. He makes some friends. He starts traveling. He starts seeing the country. He still never left the United States. Yeah. Like, he always wanted well, and, to go to and Europe, and it was, but never made it. It was mostly the the coast, like the East Coast, that he would travel. Like, yeah. he, would, he would get out of Providence, but, like, he didn't really leave his comfort zone so much. No. No, he was definitely still in WASP territory <laughs> the whole time. And then, uh, yeah, he died of... Uh, cancer in 1937 because he, he'd been having some issues but just didn't go to the doctor for him probably because he didn't have any money and was a recluse and by the time he did they're like oh all right dude you're fucked yeah yeah they're like uh yeah but yeah, i think he went into the hospital and died five five days later yeah yeah he died at, and he was 46 jeez man and uh and he and he really easily could have just been forgotten there as some dude who published a few things here and there in some trashy pulp magazines mm-hmm. that, you know, at that point in time, I mean, they were damn near printed on toilet paper. I mean, these were not. Or bog roll. Yeah. Th- these were not classy publications. Yeah. Yeah. It, w- it wasn't, it wasn't literature for, uh, for adults. It wasn't literature as far as <laughs> a lot of people were concerned. Yeah. To be quite frank. I mean, they were like what comic books were in the sixties. Yeah. 
But he had he had two good buddies, Robert Block and August Derelith, that kind of continued writing Mythos works. Like they kind of continued writing his universe out. And a couple of his friends uh, founded a uh, a publishing company called Arkham House, where they republished his work because they were like, "Hey, this guy's shit was good." Yeah, that's what I that's what I'd heard that that August uh, Duraleth or whatever his name was. Yeah, Duraleth. Yeah. Um, that he he had money. You know, he had deep pockets, but he wasn't as much of a writer, and he was a huge fan of Lovecraft. So he formed Arkham House, or you know, he was part of the formation of Arkham House with the express purpose of putting together like bound versions of yep. all of HP Lovecraft's stories and getting them translated so they could send them around the world because like he knew of the brilliance of these stories, but they they were just going to go nowhere. Yeah. And they found a few other authors that kind of followed in his footsteps thereafter. Mm-hmm. And and I guess even when he was alive, like he was totally into that. I mean, I think the Necronomicon got spread around concern. I mean, it's all over the place now. Yeah, it showed up in Friday the third or I mean, Jason goes to hell and Evil Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Like it just became part of, you know, horror culture. Mm-hmm. Like the Necronomicon. That's a thing. And uh, another another notable name of those authors that like because he was even like pen pals with these authors oh, authors yeah. like yeah. Robert Block and and another one is uh Robert E. Howard, the creator yeah. of Conan. And um I think it was in 35. He mentions Lemuria in a number of his yeah. stories, too. Yeah, Lemurian and, like, the Hyperborean, you know, of, like, the Red Sonia stuff. Yeah. But I guess it, it like, destroyed uh, Lovecraft when Robert E. Howard killed himself in, like, 1935. Yeah, that, that that was a huge loss to him. And, like, son of a bitch. Like, everyone close to him is, I don't know. Like, I mean, and he never saw his wife again. No, he like didn't. they never they never divorced, but uh, no, they did divorce in oh, did they? Yeah. Oh shit. Okay, never mind. Yeah, no, I yeah, just hadn't heard that. But it was like a long distance divorce, which is like, all right, this isn't going to work, and they were just like, yeah, let's sign the paper. Yep. But it's odd how close he came to just becoming a footnote in the annals of time, if even that. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for his friends after he died, like saying, "Hey, check this shit out," and continuing that effort into the fifties when this that actually picked up and people were actually starting to read that shit yeah seek out stuff and and like and then in the 60s too with like with horror movies and like horror fiction becoming a a viable um option for a career you know like all of a sudden people are seeking out you know other avenues of this so like i that's what i heard that that in the 60s you know with uh with night of the living dead and the hammer horror films hitting yeah. it big, like it just like a resurgence in horror that, that people were just looking for things. And then all of a sudden he got discovered and you know, that that's what led to him being so highly regarded because you know, like, like you made the Van Gogh comparison earlier that yeah. they're just, he never saw a single fruit of, of his, uh, of his labors. Or, I mean, like he, he never saw a glimpse of how big and legendary he would be. Oh yeah, he'd be shocked if he saw a Cthulhu plushie. You're like, wait, hold on, what is this? <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, and I mean, his influences went far and wide. Just, I mean, just looking at at movies, I mean, some of the folks that um, that you could see are, are like a super obvious influence on you know, like John Carpenter. Like John Carpenter's The Thing is very clearly influenced by Mountains of Madness. Yeah, it's. Yep. Uh, it's probably done better. Like that movie yes. is fucking amazing. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro is, you know, he's a huge fan. He was super influenced by him. Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. was super influenced by him. I mean, like 
His mark on what horror is Stephen King, like The Mists, is a very Lovecraftian kind of story. But his impact on horror is unfucking deniable. Yeah, that that kind of, I mean, cosmic horror wouldn't exist. Like you, you know, Event Horizon, that kind of movie where it's you know people go into space and they find a derelict ship and it's just got some sort of weird. Not that one's more satanic than Eldritch. Like it's a bit more Judeo-Christian looking, but uh, it's like a portal to hell and fucking Sam Neill goes mad and you see his wiener. Oh yeah, yeah. I actually put that on my on my list on I think it was uh, on, on it? HBO. No, I I remember seeing it when oh, I was okay. a teenager. And the movie's fucking great. See, I was let down because it was built up to be the scariest fucking movie that ever existed. And when I watched it, it just I I don't know. I don't know if my expectations were just too high. But I just, I, I didn't care for it, but I'm like, you know, I, I should give it another shot. Um, and like John Carpenter did that movie, like in the mouth of madness. And, and I tried to, or was that Clive? That Barker? also has Sam Neill. No. Yeah, that is. Cause okay. it's part of the trilogy. Like it's the thing, the, uh, the Prince of darkness and in the mouth of madness. Those oh, okay. are all like in the same universe. And I wanted that to be like more of a direct translation. And when I just sort of looked into it cursory, like I, I read that it's more of like a love letter to Lovecraft. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I, I don't, I don't need to watch it cause it's not any sort of adaptation. It's a good movie. Yeah. I saw it. I haven't seen it recently, but it, it's, I mean, like the, the creature effects aren't quite as good as the thing. Which could be said about almost well, yeah, any other much movie. All movies. So, I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a high bar to try and <laughs> yeah. clear. But, uh, no, it's good. It, it, like, it's got uh, Sam Neill. He's kind of like a, a, he's trying to like find this author that went missing and who's supposed to be publishing his work. And like he ends up going to a town that's not supposed to exist. It's like the town that he writes all of his stories in. Oh, okay. We can stop there. And uh, I'm, I'm in. I will, yeah. Craziness ensues and, and it, it's fucking good. Okay. Yeah. It's worth watching. All right. Uh, do we want to talk about any other movies real quick while we're on that? Um, if you'd like to, we can, I, I don't really have much to say about movies. I, I really haven't, uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't experienced any, but you have told me about color out of space. Color out of space is really good. It's probably one of my favorite Nicholas cage performances. Mm -hmm. Like it, he is so perfectly fitted to that role. Uh, cause like he'll take anything <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this movie is is fucking brilliant and i love that they got him for it and it is uh it's not 100 percent faithful to the story like they definitely change a lot of the little details here and there it's set in like modern times and they change some stuff but i think the concept of the movie and what it was trying to get and what the story was trying to get across is all 100 percent there cool and it it's really good i enjoyed the shit out of it i think it does i think it's the most accurate adaptation of or one of the most accurate adaptations of Lovecraft's work from a conceptual point of view. And it is, uh, it's got some great effects in it as well. And, and, and cosmic horror is a really tough one to do. Cause like in that's in the story, the color, color out of space, like they, you know, a meteor falls and like lands on this farmer's land. And one of the things about it, you know, that gives the, the story its name is that it and all the stuff that it spawns has a, uh, has a specific color about it that they only describe as a color because it's the closest thing that they could think to call it, but it's not a color. I wonder if, if that, if that's a, a sly little reference in Futurama, when I, it's a quote that I use all the time, whenever something confusing happens, I, I, I always quote Fry's, uh, did everything just taste purple for a second? 
but but it's like it has a color that is not describable it's it's not a normal color and so it's like okay when you make a movie how the fuck do you do that yeah like do you have to do like a weird shimmer yeah and so they you know and and what they did works i mean you get what it is it's it's something unnatural so it it works but that's a tough one to do yeah describing the indescribable like you said yeah if you see it and it's so crazy that you go insane how the fuck do you make a movie about it yeah you're not going to get repeat viewings no, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. If you do it right, oh boy, <laughs> you're gonna go to jail. Yeah, two thumbs down. I didn't go one bit crazy. And then I, I guess the only other one I want to mention offhand is, uh, I had to find. I had to like go to, like pirate it off the internet because it was not available for like purchase or streaming anywhere. Don't pirate things, kids. It's illegal. Piracy is theft. Unless, you wouldn't steal a pencil, would you? Unless you literally can't buy them. Yeah. In which case, uh, fuck, fuck them. Yeah, yeah. They're going to make it hard. Whoever's got the copyright isn't interested in making money anyway. But in 2005, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society made a, uh, a Call of Cthulhu movie. It's a 45-minute silent movie shot in black and white. Nope. No, it's actually pretty good. It is a really faithful adaptation of the story Call of Cthulhu, which is hard to do, but they do it pretty well. I don't know if it being silent makes it better, but it definitely made it cheaper. Yeah, that's that's the difficult thing is watching the movie after knowing what the story is like it, it, it'll probably make quite a bit more sense. But if it's jumping around like the story does, uh, that might be really difficult for somebody who's never read or heard the story. They do a good job with the pacing. Do they like show a calendar that flips back 13 years for uh, Legrasse's uh, story? actually. <laughs> 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 like I mean, and it's it's a pretty legit remake. Like if you didn't know that it was made in 2005, like you might think it was a proper silent movie that was made back in the day. Oh jeez. Okay, I'm I'm intrigued now. They yeah, they do a pretty good job. They've all got like the dark eye makeup and stuff so that you can see the contrast on their faces and I don't it was it's 45 minutes. It's worth a watch. It was pretty good. Huh. And uh <laughs> I think watching it without having read the story you might be a bit confused. Yeah. When you've read the story and you know all the background to it, watching the movie is pretty entertaining. Does it have like, like the, like the, the cards of like, you know, does somebody like yeah. say something silently and then it has the card? Okay. Then I guess that's. It absolutely okay, does. Okay. I, I, yeah. I guess if it's made like that, then that is, that does make it a bit. Yeah. And it's got the, mu- it's got like the mood music in the background and, and it's got a stop motion Cthulhu. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty rad. Like it's, it is, uh, they, they went whole hog with it. And uh, I, I think they did a really good job. It's totally worth a watch. So what do you say? You want to take a break? Yeah, I think it's I've about got, that I've time. got an ancient one to let loose from my bladder. <laughs> oh, be careful with that. We'll be right back. Looking for a little pick-me-up to add to your regular rotation of audio? Well, maybe this is what's missing from your life. <laughs> Oh my god. Come drop in on the laughs and the continuing conversation every Thursday with us here on the Fucking A podcast as a couple of longtime friends get into what's going on in our lives and all around planet Earth. Listen to Fucking A wherever you get your pods. Hey, Ben, welcome back. Hey, hey, hey. I'm Fat Ben. <laughs> is that how you're feeling? How was your break? Uh, filling is yeah. how my break was. Yeah, man. I, I will admit to being slightly jealous. Your your wife had texted me um, shortly after I arrived and she had taken off. 
asking if I'd eaten dinner tonight, and I had just stuffed my face, so I was, I was, I was good and full. You know, no need for your wife to get me anything. Oh, uh, you thought she was talking about her cooking. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, I figured it might be like KFC or something. No, this chick comes back with five guys, mm. bacon cheeseburgers. Son of a bitch. Did I make a mistake not asking? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know. I didn't know that was coming. I was pretty excited to come in. Saw a burger I was like, Oh, fuck yeah. Five guys. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. They, they make a tasty burger. They do. It's not the cheapest burger, but nope. uh, it's good. Yeah. I mean, fucking Carl's Jr. is not the cheapest burger anymore, and it is. Eh. Yeah. So, Their bacon Swiss is still pretty great, yeah, but but it's not some, worth the price. They have a couple decent burgers, but it's uh, not worth what they want to charge for. Yeah. Them. You know, we haven't talked about it in a while, but on the topic of pants shitting, oh, yeah. uh, five guys was the place that saved me in in the the closest I've ever come to shitting my pants. <laughs> like it was bad. Me and my girlfriend at the time were coming back from the coast. We went down to like um, Stinson Beach and okay. that that yeah. area over there. We were coming back through Vallejo and I was just like, oh, oh no, this is, this is bad. This is, this is real this bad. This is a now thing. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, I can, I might be able to make it home. Let's, let's just keep going through Vallejo. And just as we were getting towards uh, Fairfield or Vacaville, one of the, one or the other, I was just like, oh no, oh no, this is, this is dangerous. Like we need to get off the freeway right now. Were and you drive driving someplace. or was she? She was. <laughs> and, so this was not in your head this was out loud yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we we pulled off the freeway and she like missed the turn because we, we we saw the five guys there i was like that's where we're gonna go she missed the turn we had to drive up the street to find a place where we can u-turn oh no we ended up like driving through a mall parking lot like i i jeez, i'm trying to remember a movie where where there was a guy like running in somewhere doing like a weird like like legs out to the side, like holding, holding his butt or something. You know, like it, it was, it was that close. Like I, it was, I was, I was I've, sweaty and just, I've been there. I, I bet <laughs> I would believe it. Um, eating, eating sandwiches that, that you warmed up on your dashboard all day or leftovers. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, five guys, delicious burgers save you when you're going to shit your pants. Yeah, Nice place to shit. Yeah, that that would have been a, a eldritch horror right there. <laughs> Back on topic. Um, so Ben, what's your favorite use in pop culture? Uh, so my favorite use in pop culture is uh, the Call of Cthulhu tabletop RPG. Ooh, it is fantastic. I it's basically set in the Lovecraftian universe. You know, it's got all of the you know the elder gods and all the beasts and ghouls and night gaunts and shit that you get out of the mythos, but you can, uh, live and die in it. Uh, it was, it was originally developed by Sandy Peterson. Who's that? Uh, well, he is, uh, he did, um, uh, RuneQuest. Like he was one of the big guys behind RuneQuest and all that it was another tabletop RPG, but you probably know him best as, uh, he was the guy that designed nearly all of the levels for Doom. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. He's been a game designer forever. Was, he's a big hp lovecraft fan and like went to the rune rune quest guys i think it was and was like hey can uh i want to do like a lovecraft themed module or something and they're like hey you know this would be better in like modern times or more modern times like the 1920s 1930s kind of times mm -hmm. lovecraftian times yeah and uh so they just said go ahead write it do it and he did the first edition on his own so he got like royalties on that because it was like all him 
And uh, it was published by Chaosium. Still is published by Chaosium. They're on the seventh edition now. Damn. Yeah, and it is, uh, it's fucking turbo fun. I mean, it's similar to D&D in a, in a way. You know, it's that same kind of, you know, role play where the dice kind of determined what happens and shit. Oh, yeah. You know, I didn't even think of that, like D&D being tabletop RPG, because we always played virtually, you know, yes, when, when I yeah. played. So when, when you said tabletop RPG, I pictured more like a hero quest. No, yeah, the, it's it's a full on it's it's probably it's more akin to D&D than hero quest it's a little different because you use percentile die for everything so like your skills you've got like a uh you know say you've got a 50 percent in drive automobile and so then you roll a d100 and if you get below the 50 percent like you're within the range for success yeah if you get above it then you fail and if you get like uh half of it or if it's less than half, it's a, it's a hard success. And if it's less than a fifth, you get an extreme success. Extreme success. So that's how you get like critical hits and shit. Huh. It's different from D&D in the way that it is much deadlier. Instead of like adventurers or heroes, you're investigators, you know? So you're kind of going, you're, you're the guy that has, you know, that stumbles upon this mystery that, that rips forth the veil and you see the greater truths of the universe you know you start encountering some of the mythos beings or or whatnot and it's not the kind of game where like you level up and then kill cthulhu <laughs> no, you're gonna fucking die that's what's gonna happen oh you don't kill cthulhu you hopefully stop the cultists that are trying to revive him and uh if you fail you get the fuck out of there <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, you succeed by not dying yes your characters die a lot character death is very much thing because like it's not balanced heroically like if you get shot once or twice you're fucking dead and like once you get injured it takes weeks to heal you know it's not the kind of thing like D where you take a short rest and now you got all your hit points back. yeah like no no you're fucked up and if you get like if like one damage thing takes you below half your hit points you're fucking like permanently injured like you've got a fucking gimpy leg now <laughs> you can tell when the storm's rolling in yeah and the other really cool mechanic that it adds is a sanity feature. So like you've got you've got a sanity level and like when you see something crazy like you see a mutilated body or you you know you see a night gaunt or you know you see that you you come upon the the weird uh, mongrel orgy from Call of Cthulhu in the swamp you have to roll a sanity check. And uh, it's just like all your other checks if you roll you know, if you fail your sanity check, you lose sanity. And if you lose more than a fifth of your sanity, you go temporarily insane. I feel like there's another game that does that. Is it Betrayal that does that? Do you have a sanity yeah, meter you in there? Sanity meter okay. Betrayal, All right. Hell. But yeah, you, you go temporarily insane. So like your character will, you know, you have a bout of madness and like you'll have, you gain like insane trait of some sort, like you're super strong or you, at least in Pulp Cthulhu you do, or like you always come up with crazy plans and and then you get to roll role playing is insane is actually pretty fun too because you'd be like all right i'm gonna take this dynamite and i'm gonna jump inside the monster's mouth and light it or something crazy like that <laughs> and it's a it's a load of fun i played a couple uh, you know a couple like one shots of the regular call of cthulhu and then i ran a game called two-headed serpent of pulp cthulhu which is more which is a bit more action adventure like you're a little bit more survivable okay <laughs> in that game because it's more like a pulp adventure novel you know where you could be swing across the ravine with my whip kind of thing you know? yeah pull some indiana jones shit makes surviving a little more fun yeah and in that one you've got a you, you you've got luck in both of them that you could use to modify some of your roles and you can spend it on, on like to make your roles succeed mm -hmm. and on that one like you can't like if you die and you've got 30 luck you could use all your luck 
to not die, but you have to come up like everyone thinks you're dead and you have to come up with like some crazy way you survived it. Like Indiana Jones in a fridge and a nuclear explosion. Or you were hanging off on the side of the cliff when, when that tank went off. Yeah, exactly. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, there is, um, like, like how I've mentioned it before, the, how we roll podcast mm-hmm. does call a Cthulhu stuff. Primarily they do some D and D and some other shit too, but they, uh, they've got some excellent Call of Cthulhu campaigns on their podcast. And a lot of them are fairly short. Like some of them are like six episodes long because everyone dies and that's just the way it goes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they're a lot of fun. That's, it's a great way. Like if you're interested in getting into the game, you can go listen to them and you'll kind of pick up on the mechanics Yeah, and then find a game. But it's, uh, it's a load of fun. It's got all the mythos monsters and like, that's where most of my mythos knowledge comes from is that game. Ah, do you get bonus points for using hot words like Cyclopean? <laughs> no, you should, though. Cyclopean. <laughs> Honestly, though, after you told me what Cyclopean means, it doesn't bother me as much for some reason. Like, knowing that that's what that means. Once it makes sense and it's not like, what are all these one-eyed buildings? What yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. It, are they like, yeah, I pictured like rounded on top spires or like domed spires that had like one window off the top. Cyclopean. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll have to give that a try sometime. I don't know. It, it still seems like a bit much for me as far as role-playing games go. If there was like a uh, like a hero quest or betrayal way to do that where you could do a game in a night. They've got they've got a lot of little one-shots that you can do in a night. Yeah. Um, the, the Two-Headed Serpent one I was playing was super long. Like, we didn't even get through it. Like, it ended when COVID came because we it was an in-person game and we, oh, you used to play in person with people around here? Oh, yeah. Oh, that wh- were you playing with like with like uh, Ben McGrath, RIP? And... Yeah, with Ben and uh, my uh, uncle that's younger than me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And a few other people. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I'd like to start doing that again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fun. That's feasible. If, if it's just like five people. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's a good one. Check it out by Chaosium Games. Well, uh, as we all know, unless you came in late in the episode somehow... Uh, <laughs> if you're just tuning in, yeah. If, if you're if you're uh, your brother or partner was listening to this and you came in after uh, first impressions, uh, we know that my favorite Houston pop culture is, without a doubt, Call of Cthulhu by uh, by Metallica on Ride the Lightning. It's so badass. I love it. We already talked about it, but like one thing that I meant to say that that uh, that I didn't get in earlier was I love how listening to it. You know, I'd. The comment about them coming off of Kill 'Em All, which was really raw and fast, and and them, you know, getting more melodic and more, you know, produced, I guess, or you know, or you know, them working on their production skills, you can still hear the rawness in it. Like with like Lars, who I don't know why, like when I was learning to play the drums, Lars was it. Like I I idolized him. I I learned to play. In fact, the first song I ever played on the drums was For Whom the Bell Tolls from Ride the Lightning. Oh, yep. You know, that, that was the first song I learned on the drums, but then throughout the years, I don't know if it was the Napster thing or him just generally just being, being a, a douche. Yeah. Or, but, and also discovering that he's actually not that great on the, <laughs> on the, on the drums, you know, like he's, he's not someone to idolize once, once you actually learn to play the drums. Yeah. He's no Neil I, Pert or John Bonham. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I. I enjoy the, you know, like hearing him in a more raw form where like he's, He's, uh, he's not as polished as he was later on once they were like overly produced and they were like picking bits and pieces from different drum tracks to put together on the black album. But it's, it's fun watching him or listening to him, uh, just, just go for it. Cause they're just fucking fills 
all over the place. Like you could yeah. give him a billion dollars and he wouldn't be able to recreate, you know, even close note for note what he was doing, like, like the types of fills that he's doing. And, and like the guitar solo from Kirk Hammett is just fucking insane. It's blistering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, it doesn't always make sense. Yeah. But but I love it. Like it's Which still, is perfect for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it creates the mood. It creates like the desperation at certain times. And then like when it picks up into like the double speed on the drums, like you're just like, oh fuck, yeah, here we go. And then it's really dramatic in the end. Like it is it is a very theatrical song. Yeah. And I can't remember if Ooh, I can't remember if it was this song or if it was, or if uh, what I read was just referring to the album. I think it was. I think Dave Mustaine, this might have been like the last song that he had a writing credit on. I believe that because yeah. it, it feels kind of Dave Mustaine y. Oh, yeah, it was that because Megadeth also has a song. Uh, I can't remember what the song is, but it has the same chord structure as, uh, as this. So my runner-up that I was referring to earlier, because originally my my uh, my favorite use in pop culture was going to be this one specifically, but also just metallic. Because as I was uh, as I was listening to uh, at the Mountains of Madness, one thing he uses uh, a term he uses for the creature that's chasing them out of the mountains. He says the thing that should not be, and I was like, wait, what? Yeah, no shit, right? So on Master of Puppets, there is a song which I loved to death as a kid so much that I made my my AOL screen name for a while, hybrid some number, or uh, because I loved the line, hybrid children, watch the sea, pray for father roaming free. And I was like, oh, fuck, thing that should not be. Like, is, is that also a Lovecraft thing? It's totally based on Shadow Over Innsmouth. And so it's talking about hybrid children, you know, with... with yep, which, the fish people. Exactly. Talking about the sea, talking about going mad, you know, like... It, it is, it's totally like steeped in Lovecraft lore. And I loved that there was another one, you know, like, like that, that was a, that was a fun revelation because Call of Cthulhu, like that's, there's, there's no guessing on that one, you know, and, but there's also no, um, lyrics, no lyrics yeah. yeah, to, to imply that, but, but they do it well with music. I just loved that there was another Lovecraft song. And um, again, I, I, I read that that was Cliff Burton's influence. You know, the bassist who tragically died after Master of Puppets. So maybe that's why we never got any more Metallica Lovecraft songs. Yeah. But that's so cool that, that you know, some fucking metalheads in the 80s and their early 20s were writing songs based on, on Lovecraft books. Well, like, like I said, his influence goes deep. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking cool. Like, just the same as, like, Neil Peart brought, brought like, Ayn Rand yeah. style lyrics to Rush, you know. It was, it's cool to see that that type of influence. Um, as far as other things in pop culture, just to touch on, like, I, this isn't a favorite or anything, but I, I did want to just mention that I started the series Lovecraft Country. I oh, know yeah. I told you about this. Yeah, but I, I meant to watch some of that and never got around to, like... I wanted to watch it when it came out. I was like, oh, that looks cool. But I didn't have H, it's on HBO, right? Yeah, HBO Max. So I didn't have HBO Max at the time. And then like, it was like on my list, like I should go watch that. And uh, yeah, never got around to it. Yeah, because of of this episode, I, I, I was sitting around last week and I was like, oh shit. Yeah, I, I should give this a try. And like the first episode, I mean, well, first off, I didn't, I didn't realize this. It takes place in like the 60s. Yeah. And, and like, it is heavy into... The racism yeah, of, yeah, of, like of the time, segregation, and and, yeah, yeah, and, and just like small towns that will, you know, like talking about fucking, um, what is it called, like the uh, sunset, sunset law or sundown? Oh, yeah, with curfew, sundown law, yeah, where like 
once the sun goes down, one fucking king shit cop refers to it as, as like his legal obligation to take them in the woods and kill them. Like that's fucking bonkers. It, it's so weird that, that stuff like that, like, like you know, it's real. And it, it, it was interesting seeing the way they handled it. Like it was pretty perfect because I, I was talking about the, uh, I don't know if I was talking about it on the show actually, but there's an episode of the twilight zone, uh, the Jordan Peele one where they were dealing with a cop with a racist cop and it, it was too ham fisted and just, you know, it, they, they should have relied on good old twilight zone metaphor a bit more and not just making it so literal at the end. Um, but like this one, just like they, I don't know, they did it right. And like it, it put me in a, in like a, a situation of like panic for these characters that I'm really invested in. And, and at the same time, just being like, holy shit, like this is the kind of thing that people dealt with back then. Like that's, yeah. that's fucking bonkers that that was, you know, 60 years ago. But the first episode was fantastic. No, uh, well, without spoiling things, eh, never mind. Won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> or the John. <laughs> oh, oh no, now you gotta say, <laughs> you're not just jumping straight into Cthulhu. And, and I only watched the first two episodes and it, it was interesting. The second episode wasn't nearly as good as the first one. Um, so I didn't watch the third one right away and, and instead, you know, devoted my time to other things, but I am gonna, I am gonna watch it. I mean, it's only one season and it's not continuing. So I am curious. Do you know if they wrapped it up or were they planning on more seasons? I don't know. I, well, I mean, it was doing so well that it was just assumed that there would be a second yeah, season. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think it's, it's my assumption that, uh, who's it? Jonathan majors. Is that his name? Uh, the guy playing Kang now in the Marvel universe. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh shit. Well, he's wrapped up. He's busy. Yeah. So. Making that Marvel money. Yeah. Um, but he's much better in this show than he was in that fucking Loki finale. <laughs> Ugh. Um, you ready for a one word review? Let me look at my, uh, Is yeah. it Cyclopean? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> the way, the, the way this episode just came together, hey, like these large blocks, finely hewn blocks of stone. There's no mortar involved. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> He's, he is definitely not Cyclopean at all. <laughs> no, no. Um, so yeah, for my one word review, I went with enduring because, uh, he, he was kind of a man that was both before and after his time. Like the time that he was living in was like the worst time for him to be there because like he felt out of place and like he should have been, you know, 18th, 19th century is kind of where he pinned himself. That's where he, he, like, he kind of modeled his, his ideals of, of what, what it was to be a man and, and what writing meant to him and the way he wrote. And kind of the, just the the ethos that he wanted to follow was kind of outdated by the time he was around. And on the other hand, the actual art he produced wouldn't really be appreciated until, you know, another couple decades after his death. So he was kind of just like trapped in the middle where he didn't feel like he belonged and society wasn't quite ready for him at the same time. But once once everyone figured out what he had done and was able to digest it, it became part of horror essentially mm -hmm. the whole idea of cosmic horror is still is still very relatable now and probably will be forever i mean the the smallness of humanity and your and the individual self the overwhelming time scale and and size scale of the universe i mean that hasn't gotten any smaller over the years i mean mm -hmm. holy shit the 
meaninglessness of of life possibly you know that kind the of frivolity exi- yeah the existential crisis there where you know you don't matter and if there is anything big and important and scary out there that uh that makes the universe make sense uh well you don't matter to it either <laughs> <laughs> like that's going to continue you know he's got he created you know a terrifying mythos like his creatures and pantheon of gods i don't even know if calling them gods is the right thing just like things that existed before things existed yeah they're like galactus they're like they're just they're just forces of nature yeah yeah a lot of them are described like they're not even made of like matter because they existed before matter was a thing yeah you know and they're just large and yeah you couldn't punch them yeah they're large and uncaring and uh and cruel and uh there's nothing you can do about it See, and as much as that creates a hopeless feeling, like for me, like as you were saying that, I was just like, hey, you know, I guess I don't have to worry about that because, because I, because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, yeah. If nothing I don't matters, need to, I, don't need I to can't be fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> like nothing depends on me. So cool. And if any, anything that does also doesn't matter. Yeah. So. But, uh, and just, and the universe continues to expand. I mean, there's people that continue to write on it and borrow things from the mythos. Like, like I said, there's the, you know, the role-playing games and, you know, further novels is just, and Cthulhu. I mean, you see Cthulhu for president bumper stickers. <laughs> I, I remember the first time I saw that, like the, like vote Cthulhu 2020. Why choose the lesser evil? <laughs> like, That's fucking brilliant. I yeah. love that. He has built an enduring legacy that has made an indelible mark on on horror fiction and uh that you know as dead as he is they're not gonna be able to take that away from him that influence is never gonna go away yeah um oh also i didn't mention it before so much now fucking mythos art like if like have you like gone through and like googled images of like the creatures and shit that he talks about i was doing that earlier today yeah i, I looked at a few of them oh, they're fucking great yeah like they're i mean so many good just terrifying looking creatures can you describe one no they're indescribable (laughs) (laughs) but uh google lovecraftian horrors and uh lots of tentacles but uh lots of stuff without tentacles like night gaunts like tall and thin with no face and wings and earlier uh, just uh just to look into it a little bit i i just googled like lovecraft monsters and it came up with like this visual database like in alphabetical order that you can click on some really really good quality art yeah well and you and you got shit like azathoth you know like the main god who's got like no real form other than just a mass of like bulges and eyeballs and and shit and he's just and and he's completely insane and doesn't give a shit doesn't even doesn't even know the universe exists but he has but controls and can destroy anything in it this is like fuck this is how much consumption of, of lovecraft i did like i know i i listened to azathoth earlier today i don't remember it <laughs> or maybe it was last night but i you know I, i'm just like i'm like oh was it that no that was from mountains uh, no that was from dagon uh, i don't even remember it was super short probably said cyclopean in there somewhere probably every Definitely said damn Eldritch. Thing. Ugh. but yeah uh he's got an enduring legacy that uh you know all the Canned beans and racism in the world can't be taken away from <laughs> Well, mine is a little less glowing. Originally, I was like, okay, I'm going to go in in the show and I'm just going to let Ben lead and I'm going to be neutral. I'm going to state facts about things. 
And then when it comes to my one word review, I'm going to fucking end this show on a negative note. <laughs> really going to stick it to that fucking anti-Semite. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but I, I feel like we've been reasonably neutral and fair. We've given praise and given criticism, but my one word review is overblown. I just, I can't do it, man. Like we talked about in at the mountains of madness, just that in just ongoing fucking description of honeycomb cyclopean spires and eldritch horrors and, and Stygian ice bridges and like I, I, (laughs) if it weren't for the fact that I was doing it for the show and it was research and that at some point something awesome may happen, which did happen in the last like eight minutes of the four hour runtime. Uh, or, you know, listen time of, of the, uh, of the thing, you know, that I couldn't stop, but I regretted starting. Um, I, I wish I would have done a deeper dive on, I mean, I wish I would have just started with, um, with Dunwich Horror or, um, Shadow Over Innsmouth because conceptually those sound great, but I mean, just everything he, he does just seems to be too much for me. I'm a simple man. I like pulp detective novels that are short and to the point. And when you want to describe something, you describe it as clearly and succinctly and quickly as possible. The, the stories that I like have characters who are men of few words. Yeah. And, and I, it's, it's just, it's too much for me. I don't think it's for me. I understand why people love him, but just from everything I've experienced, he's, he's just a bit overblown. His writing style is tough. It's not my favorite. I'm not a huge fan of him as a writer structurally. Yeah. Like I like I like him for the concepts and for the mythos. But yeah, like actually reading the stuff is kind of tough. It's just it's like I said it's it's archaic, it's a bit baroque. It's just it's It's hard. not for everyone. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and and more power to the people who got sucked into that and really were terrified and inspired to to create things of their own because that's i mean i would never say that this is not great art that that he has created like like there's a reason he's a legend it's just it's not for me and i don't think i quite get it however when i was digging up the uh the graphic novels and i and i found that one for uh what is it oh man all the titles are blending in now but uh like unknown dreams of kadath like like i said earlier like i I think I, I want to, I want to go back and read that. And like, I think I might actually enjoy it. So I'm, I don't know. Curious. I mean, and it is kind of a, a bygone style. And, uh, I mean, it's like when we talked about like the old, uh, monster movies, like watching the mummy, like the mummy was kind of rough to get through. Yeah. It's kind of slow and boring and it's just kind of an older style of doing stuff, but it had some cool stuff in there but you had to wade through a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily great to get to it man them shits are on there like 90th anniversary that's bonkers another decade 100 year anniversary for movies like that's wild i was thinking about the other day and i reminded that like the mummy has no soundtrack like there's no music oh yeah at all like that's before (laughs) they thought like you know what would make movies better music yeah it's so weird that that is one of those things that uh didn't seem obvious yeah it took somebody saying hey we should do this to for for it to actually happen wow yeah because it's so ubiquitous with movies right now yeah spooky month 
let's watch spooky things read spooky things but i other than that graphic novel i don't think i'm going to be reading any more lovecraft i don't think it's for me check color out of space out i want to watch that spooky movie. movie uh rewatch the thing it's not lovecraft but it's absolutely inspired by lovecraft i've been wanting to watch the thing again for like years now and and i just haven't made it happen for whatever reason like i that movie's so good i think i just I, no because i'm not consciously doing it but like I want it to just pop up on a fucking streaming service. I've got a thousand glogdam streaming services right now, and one of them should be playing the fucking thing. I don't want to pay another fucking five bucks to watch it. <laughs> Although I do that with other movies, so yeah. I did that for Adam's family. Yeah, me too. I want to watch Halloween Kills. Oh, yeah. We were going to watch that last night, but I was a little tired. I'll I'll use my my free whatever for on Peacock or pay for a month of Peacock for it. Oh, it's on Peacock. Yeah, son of a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> fucking jerks. Who the fuck puts anything on Peacock? Uh, I mean, NBC. Just this guy. Oh, we were talking on our on our mini episode about about Jason Blum and the whole Freaky thing. I think what it what it was was that he released Freaky in theaters and it played to nobody. And I don't know if it was just because of COVID or, or because it just didn't get traction with press or with getting eyeballs on it. And then once it went to streaming, all sorts of people started watching it. So I think his, his support of day and date was because, you know, for the people who want to see it in the theaters, they'll, they'll go do it. Oh, but, okay. They can you know, build we, some hype. Yeah. But if we can also get some money at the same time for the people who aren't going to see it in theaters, you know, like all the people who watched Freaky once it was streaming, then let's do that. Yeah, so they can talk about it and say it's great. And maybe it'll inspire someone to go to the theater. Yeah. And, and if it's not going, you know, I mean, if it's day and date on Peacock, they can get some money from Peacock for that. Well, and nobody so. has Peacock. So like if people start talking about it being good, they'll either have to go to the theater or subscribe to Peacock. <laughs> yeah. I think I might rather go to the theater. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with all the problems I'm having with, uh, with no time to die. I don't, I don't need another one of those. Cause I'm going to have to deal with Dune soon. Um, but thank you folks for, uh, plumbing the Stygian depths of Cyclopean, uh, structures of this episode today along with us. If you want to talk to us about anything, you should call us up at 916-ORC-TURD. You can drop us a line at email at geeksplorationpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on the social medias, Facebook, Geek Exploration, the podcast page, Instagram, Geek Exploration Podcast, or Twitter at Geek Explore Pod. And if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, head on over to Podchaser or Apple Podcasts and give us a five Eldritch Horror review. Um, we've also, uh, we got a Discord. You should come, uh, it's at the links in the show notes. If you want to join that, come check it out. Uh, hang out with us on there. Join in on the fun, which um, is what I need to do more. Yeah. Yeah, John. Hey, I put a meme up there. I'm trying. <laughs> we also got uh, we got merch at shop.geeksplorationpodcast.com. We're part of the Geekly Grind Podcast Network. And uh, our theme song, as always, is Cruising for Goblins by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Until next time. Takalili. Takalili. Takalili.